Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll take the, uh, our, our opening prayer from the opening lines of the, uh, the, the poem. And then we will con conclude with um, the hymn of, to St. Mary of Egypt, uh, which is proper in the Byzantine tradition, uh, and then begin our program this evening. Jesu Maria, I am near death, and thou art calling me. I know it now, not by the token of this faltering breath, this chill at heart, this dampness on my brow, Jesu, have mercy. Mary, pray for me. Tis this new feeling never felt before. Be with me, Lord, in my extremity, that I, am, that I am going, that I am no more. Tis this strange innermost abandonment. Lover of souls, great God, I look to thee. This emptying out of each constituent and natural force by which I, am, I come to be. Pray for me, O my friends. A visitant is knocking, his dire summons at my door. The like of whom, to scare me and to daunt, has never, never come to me before. Tis death, O loving friends, your prayers. In you, O Mother Mary, was restored the likeness of God. For you carried your cross and followed Christ. You taught by your deeds how to spurn the body, for it passes away. And how to value the soul, for it is immortal. Wherefore, your soul is forever in happiness with the angels. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Our speaker this evening has served for more than two decades on the board of St. John Henry Newman Association. Educated at Harvard before her PhD from Stanford, Dr. Bernadette Waterman Ward is Associate Professor of English at the University of Dallas. She has written World as Word, Philosophical Theology in Gerard Manley Hopkins, and dozens of articles on both 19th century British writers and 20th century Americans. Dr. Ward is on the editorial board of the Hopkins Quarterly, has contributed articles on the Newman Studies Journal, and has written several plays, as well as academic prose. It really is a joy to welcome Dr. Ward to the Institute of Catholic Culture for the first time. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome, Dr. Ward. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 
We're in a time of fear. And the dream of Gerontius is about fear. Fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of the devil, and fear of God. It's in seven parts, seven, the number of perfection. In part one, Gerontius feels the full horror of death, and he dies. The second part, he's unsure where he is in his body or not. He meets his guardian angel. And in the third part, he experiences the awe that angels inspire. Remember, they always have to say, don't be afraid when they see us. And then he discovers that while the demons who wanted his soul are disgusting, he's not afraid of them. Evil can no longer inspire fear. And then he asks why he isn't afraid to meet the judgment. He learns that it's because he did fear the Lord when he lived. And we live in a culture that doesn't believe in the enemies of fear of the Lord sometimes. In the most profound section, the sixth, Newman shows what the pain is that we face in purgatory. And in the last section, the soul comes to rest in its desire for God, desiring the pain of purgation. Now, the dream of Gerontius was enormously popular. As soon as Newman wrote it, he's an Englishman, though. Um, in 1900, Edward Elgar, an English composer, wrote an oratorio on it. People still perform it. It takes 200 singers and 17 cellos and a lot of stuff. We'll hear some of it tonight. I... I I accepted the invitation to do this webinar before, any, before it was quite so appropriate. <laughs> Ordinarily, we don't think that much about death in our culture. The four last things, which Newman thought about all the time. He isn't shy, as we often are, of thinking of God as judge. And not always a judge who's going to overlook our rotten deeds. A little background. Newman was awakened to the good by an epidemic. He was 15 at a boarding school. He caught what he calls a keen, terrible illness, which was dangerous and was presumed to be contagious. The place cleared out, except one master who decided to stay and nurse John Henry, who was a smart-alecky teenager. This man, James Meyer, Newman said, I owe my soul to him. He was a Calvinist, but what he taught Newman was that he had not done anything to deserve existence. Um, that he came from nothing, and God cared for his being. And God rightly demanded things of him. So in a year or two, he was, well, actually one year, he was ready to go to Oxford to become a, an Anglican clergyman. Brilliant, self-disciplined, as quite a young man, Newman gained considerable success at Oxford. At 22, he gained a fellowship that would support him for life as long as he remained unmarried. It was enough to support his widowed mother, his brothers, his sisters. He had the highest sort of academic honors. And, well, most of the people at Oxford were kind of drifting in a direction of theological liberalism. So he began to drift in that direction. He didn't exactly deny the creed. 
but he was kind of soft peddling the supernatural stuff and the definite claims about the nature of God that were put forth in the creed. In the dream of Durantius, he's totally repudiated that kind of stuff. Elgar gets the force of it when the dying Gerontius makes an act of faith, an act of hope, and an act of love. Listen. Sanctus fortis, sanctus deus de profundus oro te, miserere judex meus parce mihi domine. Firmly, I believe, and truly, God is three. This is, uh, this is about, well, two pages into the, the poem for me. He's echoing Newman's sermons and writings. The saint went from a worldly collapse into treating religion as a sentiment, for which creeds are too scientific, to this powerful statement. 
of absolute loyalty to the church and a willingness to extinguish all other ties. How did he go there? Two things, sickness and death. He's 27. When in November he was giving oral examinations, they were a big performance thing for professors there, and he collapsed. So he was brought home to his family, and on January 4th, his 19-year-old sister, his favorite sister, the morning before she was fine, the next day she was dead. Newman was devastated. Um, and he threw himself into reading, reading especially the fathers of the church, studying what the fathers of the church said about what we believe, which led him finally to the Catholic church. A third illness pointed his way five years later. He was in Italy near Catania. It was like the Garden of Eden, he said. He was traveling alone, scrupulously avoiding those paganistic Catholic rituals and their superstitions about purgatory. He nearly died. But when he returned, he knew that he had to get the Church of England to understand itself, not merely as a department of the government, but as the Bride of Christ with a dignity beyond any earthly realm. In this, he failed. In worldly terms, he got famous, his sermons sold extremely well, and at the height of his fame, the Anglican bishop silenced him. He was getting too close to Catholicism, which would be denying the king's sovereignty. It would be denying the, the head of their church. And besides, even ordinary people thought that Catholics were evil, seeped in secret, disgusting sins. Um, when, when Newman and his oratorians built their house at Birmingham, the local people threw rocks at them. Well, he'd been stopped. He moved it to some converted stables and at Littlemore to, to try to con consider his religious life. So for two years, he lived there. He lived in a loose box. Most people lived in stalls, and, and they ate once a day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And at the end... From study, he admitted that the Roman Catholic Church had the traditions. He converted. That meant he lost his job, his housing, a fair few civil rights, his respectability, even his family. He had a sister who never spoke to him again. Suffering and social separation became his way to God. He went to Rome to train as a Catholic priest, and they thought, oh, this is a big catch. They treated him very well. And he was ordained at the gorgeous Capella de Re Maggi in Rome. Gorgeous place. But when he'd been just two years a priest, he was back in England. And there was a huge international epidemic of cholera. This time, he went toward the, the sickness. He went into the battle. For three weeks in 1849, he served in Bilston, England, one of the grungiest, most ghastly places in England's industrial north. Mind you, nobody knew how cholera was contagious, but they knew that it was contagious. People thought it was airborne. Newman went into it giving last rites to desperate workers for three weeks. The man's a saint for a good reason. Think about going into a coronavirus ward for three weeks with no protection. 
I won't go into his main career as a Catholic, starting in the English Oratorians School, a university, writing lots of philosophical and the philosophical and theological classics. But by the time he was 64, he was pretty sure that his life was basically over. He was actually going to live until he was almost 90, but he didn't know that. Most people live till they are about 64, and he wrote a prayer for a happy death and was thinking about it when he wrote The Dream of Gerontius. The poem went through lots of editions. One of England's greatest heroes, General Gordon of Khartoum, died when Muslim radicals speared him a dozen times, and he had Newman's poem in his back pocket, which had been his preparation for what he knew was a certain death. The main event is a soul entering purgatory. During Newman's lifetime, that had been illegal in England to, to teach purgatory. The Articles of Faith of the Church of England were a legislation passed by Parliament. But Newman is intensely able to imagine the state of a man who has some sin left on his soul, but who loves God. And the poem is theologically rigorous, and deeply felt. So, to the story. Gerontius is a good, prayerful man. We, we heard his opening prayer to Jesus and Mary. He feels the horror of death, this new feeling, never felt before, a little more precisely, a few lines later, and you can look at it in your first section there. No more a substance. Back to that shapeless, scopeless, blank abyss, that utter nothingness of which I came. To be a substance is to have unity of action. Like hydrogen is a substance, oxygen is a substance. Water is a substance, even though it's made of hydrogen and oxygen, because it has its own unity of action. You know, sodium, chlorine, salt is another substance, but each of those is a substance. Body, soul, but the substance of man is body and soul. That's why the church is so emphatic about not attacking one's own body and disfiguring it because of some whim of the soul. To harm the body harms the self. We'll see that his soul doesn't die when his body does, but the body is to be resurrected, and the man is incomplete without it. He calls him soul of Gerontius from the time he dies. Anyway, his friends, the assistants, pray, and you had Sanctus Fortis, to meet his God. He couldn't do anything until his friends prayed. It's a very effective prayer. And what are they praying for him? Well, if you look at the assistant's prayer, it's from the sins that are past, from thy frown and thine ire, from the perils of dying, from any complying with sin, or denying his God, or relying on self at the last. This is a high standard to beg protection from even the slightest yielding to sin, any complicity, not even active involvement. 
the little things that can have vast consequences. He's at a moment like Apollo 13 in space. The rhythm of this part is this irregular two-foot line. You'll hear it echoed in the demon's song later on. After their prayer, Gerontius can make that act of faith and hope and love, which you heard at the beginning, just before his body collapses. I can no more, he says. And at that moment, he indeed sees a demon that desires him. Wild with horror and dismay, Gerontius calls to his friends who are praying the assistance. They pray again with a litany of biblical figures. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Job, Isaac, Lot, and St. Thecla. Newman's quietly asserting the identity of the biblical church with the church of the early fathers. Respectable, respectable Anglican clergymen um, might disdain the, the legend of St. Paul's co-worker Thecla, but Newman lists her with Moses and Abraham. After calling on the saints, Gerontius can die with the Lord's words on his lips into thy hands, and he does. The priest begins to pray the Latin prayers of the dying, which Newman renders into English. It into good English, iambic pentameter. The great Victorian art critic, John Ruskin, couldn't say his way, see his way clear to converting, but he complained, all the most beautiful prayers are Catholic. <laughs> Part two, which you can find now, he's called Soul of Gerontius, and he's confused. Um, he thinks he's not sure what's going on, whether he's dead or not. Um, what he's missing is the source of information, his body. That's how you make the decisions, your senses. Ah, whence is this, he asks. What is this severance? This silence pours a solitariness into the very essence of my soul. And the deep rest, so soothing and so sweet, hath something too of sternness and of pain. For it drives back my thoughts upon their spring by a strange introversion. And perforce, I now begin to feed upon myself because I have naught else to feed upon. The world has gone away for him. His senses have gone away. All he has is what he is now, what his choices have made him. Newman's being a good Thomist here. Everything from here on in will depend not on his action, but on God's grace, and he becomes more and more passive. In that grace, the first thing he experiences is a relationship. Someone has me fast within his ample palm. We'll see this angel holding him again later. It's his guardian angel. Not a cute little fat baby cherub. No. <laughs> it's not a winged girl in a flowy gown. No. It's a giant who can hold Gerontius in one hand. The angel sings in the rhythm of a song by Palestrina, which had only been translated three years before into the hymn we know as the strife is o'er, the battle won, the strife is o'er. You can't quite sing this hymn to that, but 
My work is done, my task is o'er, and so I come, taking it home, for the crown is won. This two-beat, very regular song is the angels. You'll see an imitation of that in the demons, only disordered. It's a resurrection hymn. The angel rhymes. Gerontius speaks in blank verse, the most natural English poetic form, pentameter. So the angel goes on to comment on his situation, echoing Ezekiel in his account of how humans are helpless and endangered. He lay a groveling babe upon the ground, polluted in the blood of his first sire, with his whole essence shattered and unsound, and coiled around his heart a demon dire which was not of his nature, but had skill to bind and form his opening mind to ill. The imagery this angel uses um, in the third part of this is some of Newman's highest diction, echoing Shakespeare. Oh man, strange composite of heaven and earth, majesty dwarfed to baseness, fragrant flower running to poisonous seed and seeming worth cloaking corruption, weakness mastering power, who never art so near to crime and shame as when thou hast achieved some deed of name. How should ethereal natures comprehend a thing made up of spirit and of clay? Were we not tasked to nurse it and to tend, linked one to one throughout its mortal day. More than the seraph in his height of place, the angel guardian knows and loves the ransomed race. The angel's eager to know man. Then the soul realizes that he has left the body. We get an idea of the grandeur of the angel because he responds, now know I surely that I am at length out of the body, had I part with earth. I never could have drunk those accents in and not have worshipped as a god the voice. The angel echoes the Magnificat, where Mary considers the incarnation, and then, in part three, the soul of Gerontius addresses his guardian. Mighty one, my lord, my guardian spirit, think. That's the way he addresses an angel. Mighty one, my Lord, all hail. But the angel responds to him as an equal. My child and brother. When he addresses Gerontius, he moves from his rhyme, his rhymed Dimeter into pentameter. He sounds more like a human. So in four speeches, they discuss the kind of time the soul is living in. It's a sort of emotional time dilation. It's, it's going to take him a long, it going, it's going to feel to him like a long time because it's such an intense time. And then we come here at the center to Newman's own holy purpose. He's able to talk to his angel. He needs, he really needs to ask one question. Dear angel, say, he's thinking of the judgment. Why have I not now, no fear at meeting him. Along my earthly life, the thought of death and judgment was to me most terrible. I had a die before me, 
and I saw the judge severe even in the crucifix. Now that the hour has come, my fear is fled. And at this balance of my destiny, now close upon me, I can forward look with the serenest joy. The angel answers, it is because then thou didst fear that now thou dost not fear. Newman is teaching us the value of the fear of God, which Newman learned during his keen, terrible brush with death. The fear of God is the beginning of heaven. But then they hear from hell. Demons are howling at them. And Gerontius is surprised. He's not afraid of them. There's a sculpture of that moment. There are the demons grabbing at them and the angel holding the soul curved to the side there. The angel explains who these demons are. And Gerontius listens, wondering. Newman's demons owe a lot to Paradise Lost, where we see dignity in ruins. Many romantic poets found this very attractive. Newman renders it, but he shows us what they don't understand. Listen to what the fallen angels think of themselves. The high thought and the glance of fire of the great spirits, the powers bless the lords by right, the primal owners of the proud dwelling and realm of light, dispossessed. And then they call God a tyrant, a despot. The rhythm is a rough parody of the rhythm of the angel's first song, but then their diction crashes. Falling as they did, they start to talk about being chucked down. And they're angry at the psalm droners that they think are going to replace them. That's another idea from Milton. We're going to hear, actually, the people in purgatory singing a psalm at the end. The angel talks about how trapped the demons are within themselves. I mean, the demon's song in, in uh, section four, for those of you who are following along. And then, as soon as he talks about how trapped they are within their own selves, the demons talk about how free they are and obsess with their hatred of the human body, a bundle of bones which rattle and stink. Gerontius and the angel talk about the demons in blank verse. And then we hear their final song, which is against the virtue of hope. The enemies of hope here, because hope is the virtue that says, I want that good. It's not optimism saying that I'm going to get it, but it is pointing you always towards the good that you desire, the good that is worth desiring. Let's hear Elgar's excellent dissonant music about the demons and virtue and vice.
the soul realizes he hasn't been seeing these demons, he's only been hearing them, and wants to know, will I see God? The angel points out that actually he's in sensory deprivation and he's not seeing anything. He's getting a sort of virtual reality. <laughs> um, it's all a direct vision from God. And the soul says he still wants to see God, though he understands, as the teenage Newman did, I am not worthy e'er to see again the face of day, far less his countenance, who is the very sun. Not less in life, when I looked forward to my purgatory, it ever was my solace to believe that e'er I plunged amid the avenging flame, I had one sight of him to strengthen me. The angel reassures him, oh, you'll see God, um, but it's going to hurt. <laughs> and uh, he tries the example of St. Francis, but they're interrupted. There's a lovely hymn of, of something that Newman invented, Angelicals. They're the stones of which heaven's palaces are built, and the stones cry out. We'll hear them later. The angel explains that, uh, we're, we're skipping that one cue of, of Elgar because of time. The angel explains that, so, that the soul will be in agony. And here we come to the very heart of the poem. When the angel explains what the agony of purgatory actually is. The sight of him will kindle in thy heart all tender, gracious, reverential thoughts. Thou wilt be sick with love and yearn for him and feel as though thou couldst but pity him that one so sweet should e'er have placed himself at disadvantage such as to be used so vilely by a being so vile as thee. There is a pleading in his pensive eyes will pierce thee to the quick and trouble thee, and thou wilt hate and loathe thyself, for though now sinless, thou wilt feel that thou hast sinned, as never thou didst feel, and wilt desire to slink away and hide thee from his sight, and yet will have a longing, I, to dwell within the beauty of his countenance, and these two pains so counter and so keen, the longing for him when thou seest him not, the shame of self at thought of seeing him, will be thy veriest, sharpest purgatory. Gerontius feels himself ready. The angel takes him to the angels of the sacred sair. They have a rhythm, five and three and five and three, sort of stately hesitation step. The angel shows us the very opposite of the devil's scorn for the human body and for human fear. The angel sings of God incarnate, embracing human agony. Amid the garden shade, the great creator in his sickness saw, soothed by a creature's aid, and agonized as victim of the law which he himself had made. For who can praise him in his depth and height but he who saw him reel amid that solitary fight? We're going to meet the angel who tended Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He acts 
as the attorney of the defense. There is no devil's advocate here. The angelical sing of the demon's false triumph over Jesus, which we'd seen prefigured earlier in their lies about their own dignity and their own freedom and their lies about the human body and their disparagement of the proper aim of hope in the divine reward for virtue. Because greatly in Newman's time, there were enemies of hope saying that if you did it, if you expected heaven for a good deed, you were being bribed and that was evil. No. Joy is the proper, the proper state of virtue. The angel introduces the fifth choir of the angelicals in a hymn that often graces our churches. Let's try the trip him sometime. I can't give it all to you now. Go listen. It's, it's free on YouTube. Uh, but after that glorious hymn about how Christ strives and prevails, the soul comes to its judgment. He hears the people on earth still praying for him. They, he hears it at the throne of God, the church on earth. The angel of the agony gives us Newman's meditation on the mental sufferings of Jesus in his passion. Newman, by the way, has a wonderful sermon on that. Shuddering dread, cold dismay, which sickened thee, that pang of heart which thrilled thee, Jesu, by that mount of sins which crippled thee, Jesu, by that sense of guilt which stifled thee. As they cry out the suffering that Christ endured to save this soul, the soul goes before his judge. The description is vivid. The angel speaks. The eager spirit has darted from my hold and with the intemperate energy of love flies to the feet of dear Emmanuel. But ere it reaches them, the keen sanctity with which with its effluence like a glory, clothes and circles round the crucified, has seized and scorched and shriveled it, and now it lies passive and still before the awful throne. Oh, happy suffering soul, 
for it is safe, consumed yet quickened by the glance of God. Then we hear from Gerontius. He wants to be exiled. He wants to suffer. He wants to be purified because God wants it. Happy in my pain, he calls himself. And part seven, recall, the seventh is perfection, is where the angel says goodbye for a while to his lifelong friend. And the souls in purgatory sing the song of Moses, the man of God, the Psalm 90. Moses who separated the seas to free Israel from slavery. Newman uses not images of fire, but of water. Death, passing through the water, baptism, cleansing, liberation, as the angel sings of his entering the waters without a sob or a resistance. We've heard the church militant. The angel is the church triumphant. And as the gates of purgatory open, we also hear the church suffering. Everyone's there. And then there's that last intimate moment when the angel says that he will come back for his friend. He'll come back for Gerontius. I will come and wake thee. Swiftly shall pass thy night of trial here. And I will come and wake thee on the morrow. And that's Newman's poem teaching us in this time of fear what to fear and when to fear and where to go for refuge. There's nothing like it in all of English literature. A saint teaching us how to die. And now it's time for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Ward. Teresa Cotter is writing in and she's wondering, um, of those who are familiar with the poem, or maybe even if they're not familiar, is there a particular line or famous part that's kind of quoted often from this poem? The, the song Praise to the Holiest in the Height um, is, is, the, is probably the most familiar part of the Dream of Gerontius. <laughs> it's, uh, it's sung in churches, of course, we sing it at, uh, at Newman Association meetings. Yeah, don't worry, the darkness will end. <laughs> It's a feature of this room or a bug, whatever. So uh, Judy is wondering, is there a particular um, like commentary that's been published or some uh, author uh, that you would recommend that someone could read alongside with reading the poem? Uh, let's see. Um, just this spring, or no, just this autumn in the Newman Studies Quarterly. Let's see. I mean, if you need Newman's life, Ian Carr's life is the best. If you want to get in touch with L Newman's spirituality, Louis Boyer, B-O-U-Y-E-R. Um, those, are, those are two of the best. And Catherine Tillman in her work on, on Newman and faith. I've written a bit on Newman, but, and I've written on his poetry, in fact. Um, but I don't know that I've written a full exposition of Gerontius except this one, because you asked. <laughs> oh yes okay lisa's writing in and she's wondering uh what's the significance of the name gerontius it means old man and it's just what newman was thinking of himself at 64 he didn't know he was going to live to 89 <laughs> so that's all it is and uh, he's a good old man excellent dina did you have a question or no? yeah i'm echoing agnes um 
why why is this lost to Catholics? I mean, it, this is such a great the way, especially the way you put it forth. It seems like so much the creed and the way to live. How did this get lost to us? Well, uh, a lot of people stopped reading um, poetry for for pleasure. It, and poetry is a little difficult, but um, I, I didn't lose it. <laughs> the Newman Association didn't lose it. Um, it's worth spreading around. And it's it's such beautiful stuff. Oh my, is it beautiful. It's mainly lived... Uh, in wider culture, in in the music, um, Elgar, um, um, the at, at Newman's canonization, there was a big um, performance, and uh, there have been there are a fair few of those. Yeah. But I think the poem itself is so valuable just to read. Just in, and it, he really knows how to handle it, handle the meter. Things. It's yeah. like an inversion of Dante's Inferno. It's like it's so wonderful. You know? It's the way out, yes. It's so wonderful. Thank you for helping us tonight. Thank you so much. That's really great. Yes, Monica is writing in and, and is asking, if, if that part where Durantius' soul is separated from his body and therefore doesn't have sensory perception, uh, Monica's wondering how he's then able to hear the demons. Everything that he hears is by the direct grace of God. So God allows him to witness evil. And that's what happens to us, but God allows him to directly witness evil in the, in the demons. Um, and of course, it's harmless because he's in the grace of God. Um, we'll end with this question, which is coming in from uh, Ronald, who's wondering um, why... Why did the poem spend a majority of time in purgatory and, and not sort of finish with this full entrance into uh, heaven? Well, for one thing, purgatory is heaven, you know. There are only two ways to go. Uh, there's hell, where you refuse God, and heaven, which is, of which purgatory is a section. Um, so he's there. But what Newman was thinking of was saint though he was, his own life. Um, he was thinking, I am facing purgatory. What's purgatory? What is that? Mm -hmm. And um, so, in fact, it's a thing to hope for. That huge yearning for God, which is the purgation. And, you know, at our best in this life, we get there. Dr. Ward, we really appreciate the time you spent with us tonight in this presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ward. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.